Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Hey, are you a dog person? How good do you think you are at spotting the breed of a dog by just looking at it? Whether it's a purebred or whether it's a mixed breed, do you think you're pretty good at figuring out what kind of dog it is? Well, I just read a paper that tested the accuracy of people who worked at two different dog shelters. So these were staff people at dog shelters. And this paper looked at how accurate these staff people were at identifying accurately the breed of a dog. What do you think their accuracy was? Drum roll, please. It was 67%. That's not bad especially considering that there's something like 340 different breeds of dogs in the world. Even though there are 340 different breeds of dogs, they can be placed into one of 10 different groups. These groups are like sheepdogs, pinchers, terriers, retrievers, setters, dachshunds, etc. Now, I would think the full-time operators of dog shelters would have a pretty good handle on identifying a dog's breed, probably better than the rest of us. So even if they are only correct 67% of the time trying to identify the primary breed of a dog, even if it's a mixture, I bet the rest of us would do a lot worse, and I would do the worst of all because I'm more of a cat person myself. If you want to look it up, this paper is published in the August 23, 2018 issue of PLOS1. This journal, PLOS1, is an online journal published by a nonprofit open access scientific publishing entity called the Public Library of Science. That's what PLOS stands for. And this was started by a group of scientists as a way of encouraging the free exchange of research ideas. So definitely these articles are all freely accessible online if you want to go look at it. Anyway, this article was published by three scientists at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona. They collected DNA from 919 different dogs that were found at two different animal shelters. One shelter was in Arizona and one was in California. And they determined what breed these dogs were based on their DNA. This is apparently the largest reporting of breed heritage in dog shelters ever done. So they collected DNA from each dog by just gently scraping the inside of the mouth and the gums of each dog. Now it sounds kind of harsh, but when I do this in class, you use Q-tips. I mean, just scraping Q-tips across the gums will give you enough cells to get DNA for analysis. On a side note, so if you're going to commit a crime somewhere, don't drink out of a cup and leave the cup. Don't spit at the scene of the crime. That's a good way of leaving your DNA sample behind. And that's because those cheek cells become released very easily inside your mouth. But don't get me wrong, I'm not recommending you commit a crime. I'm just being facetious. So they collected DNA that way from 919 different dogs, and then they had the DNA samples analyzed by a private company in Portland, Oregon called the Wisdom Panel. And the Wisdom Panel is a company that'll actually determine the breed of any dog for $100. 
This company claims that it can distinguish between 209 different dog breeds, types, or varieties with a reported 90% accuracy. So 209 breeds out of 340 possible, that's pretty good. Of course, there's a lot of mixed breed dogs out there, especially out of dog pound, I would imagine. This company claims that it can detect the breed signatures, the DNA fingerprint, so to speak, of a breed or a mixture of breeds in dogs going back three generations. So it can tell you what the breed was of the great-grandparent of that dog, or maybe I should say the great-grandparents, because there's going to be a total of eight different great-grandparents for any dog. So they've basically got DNA fingerprints for these 209 different dog breeds. And the way these DNA fingerprints work is they're looking at single nucleotide polymorphisms. They're usually called SNPs. Now in this wisdom panel, they're looking at 320 different SNPs. And the pattern of these SNPs is indicative of individual dog breeds. A SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism, is basically a mutation of the DNA where only a single piece of information, which is a nucleotide base like A, T, G, or C, that's all that's changed. Just one single base, A, T, G, or C, is changed in a long sequence of DNA. So if you had a sentence, the cow jumped over the moon, and it was mutated to be the sow jumped over the moon, well, that would be similar to a SNP. You're only changing one letter, cow to sow, but it makes a big difference. These SNPs are the simplest and most common kind of mutations found in biology. People, humans, we, we've got millions of these SNPs, and if you've ever had your DNA tested for ancestry, for instance, or your likelihood of having genetic diseases, they were probably looking at SNPs in your own DNA. So originally what these wisdom panel people did was they gathered SNP data from 13,000 different purebred dogs to figure out which SNP variations correlated the best with each specific breed. And they narrowed it down to 321 SNPs that work the best. And so that's what these mixed breed dogs were analyzed for in the dog pounds. So when all this DNA fingerprint information was returned to the researchers in Arizona, that means that they knew the genetic makeup of more than 900 different dogs that were in these two animal shelters. And they asked the staff at the shelters to guess what the predominant breed of the dog was. And these were full-time staff members who had a lot of experience, not some teenager who was volunteering that weekend. Not that teenage volunteers are bad, of course, but they may not have the experience of the more senior staff members. The American Kennel Club publishes visual guidelines for the different breeds, and so that's what the staff members were using. They also asked the staff members whether they thought each dog was a mixed breed or not, and if the staff members thought it was a mixed breed, they were asked to guess or speculate as to what the secondary breed was. According to DNA evidence, it turns out that less than 5% of the dogs in these dog shelters were actually purebred dogs. The rest of the animals had at least one other breed in their genetic background. So 95% of the dogs were mixed breed. This was a surprisingly small number because in the past, the Humane Society of the U.S. has reported that about 25% of shelter dogs are purebreds. But this paper found it was not 25% purebred, it was only 5%. 
the most common purebreds found in these two dog shelters were Labrador Retrievers, American Staffordshire Terriers, and Yorkshire Terriers, but there were 19 other pure breeds too. So this is a pretty big discrepancy. 5% of the shelter dogs were purebred as reported in this paper versus the Humane Society claiming that 25% of shelter dogs are pure breeds. And there's other researchers who have reported 30%, 40% of shelter dogs being purebred according to older reports. These authors speculate that there could be a reason for that, and that's the wider availability and more affordability of spaying and neutering of animals, of dogs. So you have fewer purebred dogs who are accidents that then get dumped off at shelters. Apparently, there are fewer dogs being put in dog shelters over the last couple decades, so perhaps more mixed-breed dogs are having more unwanted litters whereas purebred dog owners are being more responsible. This is important because purebred dogs are more likely to be adopted from animal shelters than mixed breed. Altogether, they found 125 different breeds of dog represented in these shelters. 95% of those dogs were mixed breed, and of the mixed breed dogs, most of them were comprised of three different breeds, but with some of the mixed breed dogs being comprised of up to five different breeds. About 25% of the mixed breed dogs had at least one great-grandparent that was an American Staffordshire Terrier. These dogs are also called the Amstaff dogs, and they belong to the Pit Bull group of dogs. And then about 20% of the dogs had at least one great-grandparent that was a Chihuahua. This research was done in the West, after all, Arizona and California. Chihuahuas go back to the pre-Columbian times in South and Central America. And then finally, about 15% of the dogs had at least one great-grandparent that had been a poodle. Now, every one of us has eight different great-grandparents. And so, even though the most common breeds in these dogs were the Amstaffs, the Chihuahuas, and the Poodles, that's only three. The other five great-grandparents were of some other breed. So, these mixed-breed dogs are really mixed. Now, don't forget, this was all based on DNA testing. How accurate were the experienced staff at the dog shelters at actually guessing the most prevalent breed for each dog based on visual identification? How accurate? 67%. So they could only accurately predict the prevalent breed in a mixed dog 67% of the time. And when it comes to predicting the primary and the secondary breeds for mixed dogs, that's the first and second most common DNA in a mixed dog, the staff was only accurate 10% of the time. Some breeds of dog were more difficult or challenging for the staff people to identify than other breeds of dog. The difficult ones to identify were the pit bull type dogs and the Labrador retrievers. The researchers also kept track of which breeds of dog were harder to get adopted. Which type of dog do you think would have been harder to adopt? Well, it turned out to be the pit bull group, which is composed of bulldogs and terriers. Dogs with no pit bull DNA found an adopted home within 10 days of being dropped off at a pound. But if they had pit bull DNA, it took almost twice as long to get adopted. That's 38 days for them to find homes if they contain pit bull DNA. This might be because pit bull dogs were bred specifically to be fighting dogs. And not everybody wants a fighting dog. 
So in the final parts of this paper, the authors recommend that dog shelters stop guessing as to what breed the various dogs are. Unless they're willing to actually have the animal tested at the DNA level, they really shouldn't be speculating about what the breeds are because they're just not all that accurate. Identifying a breed based on how the dog looks is really not all that accurate. And then judging a dog's breed based on their behavior, like the ability to retrieve things or pointing, that's not very accurate either. They also point out that while purebred dogs were adopted much more quickly than mixed breeds, beyond that, when people are deciding on picking up one dog or another and taking them home, they're looking at things like the attractiveness of the dog, the coat color, the coat length, the size of the animal, the temperament of the dog, rather than what breed it is. I thought this was an important paper when you consider that almost four million dogs are put into animal shelters in the United States every year. And the more we know about these dogs, the more likely we'll be able to find homes for them. Since some of the criteria for judging a dog's breed is based on the behavior of the dog, I like how this paper focused on behavior too. To me, it sort of pointed out the tenuousness of assigning behavioral traits to DNA. One of the co-authors of this paper is quoted as saying, The genetics of behavior is so complex that a dog who is a cross of two breeds might not behave much like the typical members of either of its parents' families. They're basically saying that we shouldn't be stereotyping dog breeds. After consulting with the researchers of this paper, apparently the animal shelter in Arizona is taking their advice to heart they are no longer listing the breeds of their shelter dogs. The director of the Arizona Dog Shelter was quoted as saying, Everything about the life experience of a dog, where he was before coming to the shelter, or any medical issues he might have, that's what makes him who he is, not who his grandparents might have been. When you adopt a dog, he says, you're not adopting a bully, a German Shepherd, or a St. Bernard. You are adopting Jerry or Mo. When you love a dog, you don't love the German Shepherd. You love Jerry. Thank you. Coming up next is Scott Miller filling us in on neutrinos, the birth of the Earth, and the scientific method. Talk the Weekend Science on WFMP LP Forward Radio here in Louisville, Kentucky, 106.5 FM. Those of us that have been trained in the sciences look at the world and ask, what makes that happen? Curiosity is a hallmark of the scientist, and in trying to answer that question, rely on tools to try to resolve it. Now our ancestors asked the same question, and in many cases, 
resolve the question evoking spirits in the supernatural, something that persists even today. But the modern scientist must shun that simple-minded solution and delve deeper. Knowledge gained in this way has led us to our modern understanding of how the universe works, drawing back the curtain that once veiled the mystery. Because of this, scientists do not settle on a final answer easily, because it is known in all sciences that the current understanding relies solely on the last set of successful experiments, the last well-tested hypothesis. And it is always in the mind of the scientist that new data can come along and upset that apple cart, forcing a rethink of how that which was thought to be known well can be known better. Scientists spend their lives essentially trying to disprove hypotheses and theories, not proving them as the public believe they do. For it is in the continued testing and gaining consistent results by different independent methods that more confidence is built in the current explanations. An example of this idea of using different data collection methods to draw conclusions about the nature of a current understanding was presented recently in an article in Physics Today magazine. In the Week in Physics edition, November 5 through 9, was an article entitled, Neutrinos Reveal Earth's Inner Structure. The article indicated that the use of high-energy neutrinos to probe the Earth's interior was first proposed more than 40 years ago, but until recently, an adequate detector did not exist. First, some background. Neutrinos should not be confused with neutrons. Neutrons are part of the nucleus of an atom. They are about the same mass as a proton, the other component of the nucleus. Neutrons provide the glue, if you will, to keep the protons in the core, because protons generally repel other protons. Neutrinos, on the other hand, were first hypothesized to explain conservation of energy in the beta decay process, one of the ways in which energetic nuclei attempt to stabilize themselves. When first proposed, it was thought that neutrinos were massless and chargeless, but over time they have been found to have a small amount of mass. This has proved to be useful in their detection, because overall they pass through matter without any type of interaction. But having a little bit of mass means that there is a small probability that they will interact with some matter, and that makes them detectable. In addition to their role in helping to balance energy and beta decay, neutrinos are also produced during thermonuclear reactions, like those that are produced in the energy production of the sun and other stars. Other high-energy events can also produce them, so their detection can help the understanding of those events. Returning to the Physics Today article, three scientists have taken data collected by one detector the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory located near the South Pole, and used that data to explore the Earth's interior. With this data, they were able to confirm within what are initially large error bars, some of the same measurements that geologists have found for the Earth's interior by other means, means completely independent of the neutrino measurements. If you have had an Earth science course or a science course that touched on Earth science, you may be aware that the current model of the Earth's interior consists of a solid metallic inner core, a liquid outer core, a mantle made mostly of rocky material, and a crust, the surface on which we live. 
This layering of the interior has come from the use of seismic waves, waves produced by energetic events on the surface, such as earthquakes. Two types of seismic waves can be produced by these events, S and P waves. These different types of waves can travel at different speeds and pass through or do not pass through different states of matter, liquid versus solid, for example. Using seismic detectors set up all around the world, a map of the Earth's interior can be developed by first determining the location of an energy-releasing event and then determining those detectors that did or did not receive one or both types of waves. Additionally, our understanding of the physical nature of materials due to pressure and temperature changes can tell us the types of material that may survive as a solid, liquid, or gas under those changing conditions, further helping to define what types of material make up the various layers of the Earth's interior. Now comes neutrino detection. The researchers were able to calculate the mass of the Earth in good agreement, though with large error bars, with values found in other independent methods. They could determine the average density of each layer and estimate that a large fraction of the Earth's mass is in the core compared to the results using other methods. The neutrino results are not significantly different, statistically, than those of the other results if one considers the uncertainties of each of those methods. The outcome of the neutrino experiment can be considered important for several different reasons. First, it confirms the potential for using neutrinos as an independent measurement method for the interior of the Earth. The interior is a place that we do not have access to with man-made tools, so having access to it by other means is good for learning more about the Earth's interior. Second, in science, it is always good to have various independent methods when finding a given measurement. If the answers for each of the independent methods comes in as the same or nearly so within experimental error, then scientists have a more confident feeling about that answer. Third, having an independent method for studying the interior of the Earth does allow for questioning of the current model. As was mentioned, there are some differences in the results between the standard model of the interior and that determined by the new method. Is the method to be questioned or is the model to be questioned? Both will be since the answer is related to the question I stated at the beginning. What makes this happen? So much of geology and other earth science is based on our understanding of the interior of the earth. Volcanoes and earthquakes are just two areas where understanding of the makeup of the Earth's interior aids in the explanation of these two human-affected phenomena. One last reason this research and its results can be important to the everyday person is that it might be another example of how scientists do not operate with an agenda. Too often in today's political climate do we hear some politician claiming, for example, that scientists are claiming that climate change is real or that it is a result of human activity like the burning of fossil fuels because those scientists have it in for the use of fossil fuels. Quite often it is the politician making the claim that has the bias and assumes that because he or she does, so do those whose conclusions contrast the politicians. The result is the demonizing of the scientists making the claim. It only follows that those that like that politician will join in the demonization out of emotion and not out of rational thought. That is not to say that scientists are absent some sort of bias, 
but generally because of the peer review process of scientific publications, some of this is curbed. Not so unfortunate, the politician and his backers. So perhaps the last reason is the one to conclude on. When you have taken science classes in the past, in middle school, high school, or even college, it was not the discipline itself that was always the main thing to be learned. Though when it came to tests, quizzes, and homework, it likely seemed that way. The other reason for taking science classes would be to learn the analytic thinking process used by scientists, no matter what the discipline. If more analytic thinking and less emotional non-thinking crept into politics, perhaps the polarity that is our country today could be reduced. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. that's Eastern Time 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.